Judges chapter 6 this evening. Sunday nights through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We make no guarantees about speed, just that we keep moving in the same direction toward the end each week. We come now this evening to the fifth judge, judged by the name of Gideon, and uh, it's interesting that uh, more room and more attention is given to Gideon in the book of Judges than any other judge. There is a hundred verses comprising three chapters that are have to do with Gideon. Just slightly behind that is the 96 verses in four chapters that are committed to Samson. And Samson is a lot better known than Gideon, but the lessons from Gideon's life are very, very important for us. We see that in verse 1, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So we see the continuation of the same cycle with the children of Israel in this uh, 350-year or so period of their history of engaging in sin and then uh, soon finding themselves in bondage because of their sin. And then as they uh, go deeper and deeper into bondage to their oppressors, then ultimately they would cry out to the Lord for a deliverer. The Lord would raise up a deliverer for them. They would then walk in the freedom and obedience to the Lord, usually only during the life of that deliverer or that judge. And then they would go back into sin again to complete the whole cycle once again. And so this is exactly what they're doing uh, here in, uh, is, is God is about to bring Gideon uh, on, onto the stage. Children of Israel were, were just like us in that they were free as long as they remained obedient to God's commandments. And we remain free in this life only as long as we uh, obey His commandments. One of my favorite verses in the Bible concerning the Word of God is that the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Uh, they are life-giving. They are freeing. Jesus said, if you obey my commandments, you're my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. One of the hardest things to explain, I'm sure you, you have difficulty with it yourself as a Christian, is trying to get people to understand who don't know the Lord yet that this is the richest, the freest life a person can live. But people have been indoctrinated, and I think it's also our own fallen nature to think of the Bible as some kind of an oppressive book, and God's commandments must be the lead to the most dismal, uh, you know, uh, unenlightened and, and uh, uh, pushed down kind of life imaginable, but it isn't true. I, you, you couldn't pay me any amount of money to go back out there and live in a, even a day out there apart from the Lord and knowing His commandments and the privilege of being able to obey His commandments. There is nothing that is happening other than the Lord in this big wide world. And so the Word of God, it sets us free and it keeps us free. Just simple obedience. Every time they disobeyed, it was back into uh, bondage. And so they did evil in the sight of the Lord. So, all right, there's a consequence to doing evil in the sight of the Lord for God's people. And so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And so 
God loves us enough. The Bible says that whom the Lord uh, loves, he chastens. I know he loves me a lot. I don't get away with much, really. He talks to me all the time. He's better than my elementary school principal. And and that principal talked with me a lot. So the Lord, he, he knows how to chasten us. And so here they go. God will never, ever allow us as his children. He loves us enough. He will never allow us to be successful in sin. He will rise up and discipline us uh, in order that uh, we will realize that sin is, it is pleasurable, the Bible says, but only for a season, and it's a very short season. And so the Lord allowed them to be taken uh, into captivity by the Midianites, and the Midianites were uh, desert nomads at the time. And actually, it's interesting, they were uh, re- actually related to the children of Israel. They were descendants of Abraham's uh, marriage to Keturah, who was his second wife after Sarah, his beloved wife, had died. He married her and then had a, a lot of children. The Arab nations of the world today come from that union. And, uh, and so there was a blood relationship between Israel and the Midianites through Abraham. Well, the bondage that the children of Israel kind of sold themselves into here is, is described in verse 2, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. And so here is a description of what their disobedience to God, what it reduced them to, what life was reduced to in the life of a child of God who determines that they're going to live a life of deliberate, willful disobedience to the Lord. And they end up living like animals. They're living in fear. They're living in places that bears live and raccoons live and and in caves and and out into the wilderness. We know that year after year as the uh, Midianites would come in uh, to the uh, into the land. They'd come in with their allies. They would invade the the uh, the land of Israel in great numbers at harvest time. They would steal all of the food that the children of Israel had uh, had managed and brought right to where here it is. The wheat is just gleaming in the field. The next thing to do is to harvest it, and then the Midianites would come out of the east. And uh, they would then, uh, or catch them right after having harvested it, then steal all of it. And then not content with stealing everything that they could steal of both produce and animals, they would then burn everything that they couldn't take. And uh, so this was uh, where they were, the children of Israel uh, were left. And, and so they would destroy the crops in order to keep the children of Israel impoverished and as a result of it to keep them uh, powerless. And so you think about, amazing to think about all the promises that God, as we've gone through the law of Moses, all the promises that God gave to them of what the quality of their life would be if they just simply obeyed. And then you look here how different it is. They're living in caves and dens and, and fearful for their very lives. And the distance between those two things and 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 what is the cause? The only thing that lies in between them is the issue of obedience or, or disobedience. And so it's a, an amazing picture of sin, amazing to watch what sin will do in an individual's life. 
where they'll work hard and, and, and hard and hard and harder and so many years and so much time they give into something and then how often it is that it, it, all of it ends up being taken away from them and they go into bondage and uh, leaving them with nothing materially, not even enough to eat for the family or to feed the family because of drunkenness or drug use or gambling or covetousness or something like that. And so sin has this same cycle even today. And so it was when Israel had, uh, that when, whenever Israel had sown, the Midianites would come up, also the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. Now this Gaza is the Gaza that we read about all the time in the paper today. They're in Palestinian territory today. Gaza's down in the south. And so these Midianites would come in. We're going to see ultimately that Gideon is going to defeat them up in the valley of Jezreel, which is way up in the north uh, end of Israel. And so the, the, the Midianites basically wiped out everything from the south all the way to the north. They really, they really left the children of Israel with nothing, as it says here. And they would leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. So you, you can imagine, and think about how disheartening this would be. And some of you are farmers, but any of us can on some level put ourselves in the shoes of, of that kind of a person and to watch all that work go in and here you are just ready to harvest or just having harvest and then here these people come out of the east and they take every bit of what you labored for. How disheartening. And for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, uh, coming as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So the Midianites didn't have a 365-day-a-year um, occupation of Israel. Uh, some of the other people did when, uh, under, under, under other judges, but here they would just come in and seasonally, effectively accomplish the same thing in the people's life in terms of oppressing them. This described as, they're described as being as numerous as locusts. I, I assume that almost everyone, I can be wrong, but almost everyone has seen some kind of footage on television or in school or something where you, you see these waves of locust plagues just making their way through the land. And they're just eating machines. And how they just would come through and, I mean, just strip everything, even the bark off of the trees. Nothing would be left. And, and so here is the Lord likening a description of, of the kind of devastation that they would bring to locusts. I mean, the, the thing that you feared the most in the ancient world, and occasionally, sometimes still in the Middle East, it was a, a number of years ago, I think it was in Egypt, where they were still dealing with locust plagues there a little bit. And, uh, but these plagues, locusts would come up, and you'd see them coming in the distance, maybe stories about American history, the farmers out on the prairie, and these things just come and wipe out everything. And uh, again, very disheartening. So this was the, the kind of thing that they were doing. They had camels, and uh, this is the first time we really read of camels being used in this kind of a way. A camel would uh, allows somebody to travel as far as 100 miles a day, which, which allowed them to cover considerable distance. The Midianites at this time were headquartered in a place called Aqaba. How many of you ever watched Lawrence of Arabia? He went to Aqaba. 
It's my favorite movie in, in all of history. Because it's not revisionist history. It was written right accord, according to his seven pillars of wisdom, his own account of all of that. So there. I hate revisionist history on, on stuff. History is fascinating enough. But anyway... Aqaba, down there by Elat in uh, southern Israel uh, today. So quite a distance to get up into Israel and, and, uh, and cross those deserts and all, but they could do it now because of the use of, of camels. And so Israel was greatly impoverished. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. Greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel then cried out to the Lord for a deliverer. And so they've right, finally reached the end. This, our sin is not worth this. And so now they want to repent and cry out to the Lord for, uh, for a deliverer. And so they do. And the, uh, uh, it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. Hey! We asked for a deliverer. What are you doing sending us a prophet? But God sends a prophet. Send a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, which, by the way, was a much harder thing, and out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out from before you, and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so the Lord sends a prophet to the children of Israel with a message for them. And uh, because God knows that the biggest problem that the children of Israel are having in their lives and, and the biggest issue in their lives is not the Midianites. Sometimes you go to see a doctor or something like that, and what the doctor usually has to deal with is, okay, what are the symptoms in this illness, and then what's the real illness? The Midianites were just a symptom of the greater problem that the children of Israel had. Their big problem was their disobedience, not the Midianites. But they think their problem is the Midianites. And so God's got to confront them concerning the real cause of their problems, their disobedience. And so he sends them a prophet. Now there is a great difference between a cry for help uh, when a person is in trouble and a cry of repentance over our sin. They're calling out to God for deliverance but they're not yet willing to turn from their sin. And so God sends this prophet to make things clear to them. And it appears that they're sorry over the consequences of their sin, but they're not yet uh, ready to repent of their sin. And this prophet confronts them with the fact that they are in bondage to the Midianites, not because of some failure on God's part, not because God lacks the power to deliver them or that God lacked the power to have caused them never to be delivered into the Midianites at all. God speaks to him and says, listen, you know your history. I have delivered you out of greater bondage than the one that you're in right now. I got you out of Egypt and that was bondage, uh, that was a PhD bondage. And, and so it... 
the fact that you are in bondage right now is not my fault. It is not a lack of of my power or my willingness to deliver you. And and so he's making them realize that sin was the cause of their their suffering. And it seems like they were maybe blaming God for their circumstances. We're going to see that in Gideon in just a moment. God makes it very clear in verse 10. You have not obeyed my voice. And he describes for them the characteristics of what their life was would have been and would be right now if they had simply uh, obeyed him. He's just saying, now, remember the quality of your life when you obeyed me and look at how you're living like animals now. And so, listen, you've got to repent of your sin and turn back to me. In verse 11, God now formally calls uh, Gideon and commissions him to become the next judge of Israel. And now the angel of the Lord came and he sat under the terebinth tree, which is in uh, Ophrah, not Oprah. I don't talk about Oprah. Oprah I like. Under the terebinth tree, and it's not that I don't like Oprah, but it's not that I like Oprah. Okay, you, okay so here we go. <laughs> Which belonged to Joash, the Abazirite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So we see the angel of the Lord, and I suspect in most of your Bibles, you, the word angel is, uh, the A is in uppercase. And so, again, the angel of the Lord here is a Christophany. It is a theophany. It is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in human history in the Old Testament. Now, we know this because a little bit later um, in this uh, account here, down in verse Uh, 15, Gideon is going to call this angel of the Lord, Lord. Um, This angel of the Lord in verse 16 is going to be described as the Lord. And the Lord is in all uppercase. So it's it's talking about Jehovah, talking about Yahweh. We know it can't be the Father because uh, the Father is spirit. No one can uh, see the Father. And so it, it has to be the Lord Jesus appearing. I like this thing. He comes in, this whole big mess is going on all around the children of Israel, and he sat under a terebinth tree. Just sitting there, sitting under a tree. When's the last time you sat under a tree? That's good living, isn't it? I like one of the, in, in Genesis where the angel of the Lord again comes to Abraham in the heat of the day and he's sitting under the tree. I remember being a kid sitting under trees and, in the heat of the summer. And I like that. It's very, it relaxes me. does nothing for you, but anyway, listen, I'm, I got a, I'm in this room too. And so he comes, he sits under the tree, and he's just watching Gideon. And what he's watching Gideon do is Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. What do you do? A wine press is a wine press. A threshing floor is a threshing floor. What are you doing here, Gideon? A wine press was where they would carve out uh, into the rock uh, a, a uh, cutout, and then they would put the grapes in there, and then they would squish them, and then they would make wine out. And so a wine press was, was that. A threshing floor for wheat was, would be a flat rock surface where they would put the wheat out, and then they would bring the oxen in with the, with the logs and everything to roll over them to then break the husk off of the wheat and get to the meat of the wheat and, and then throw it up, the thing up into the air and up on this threshing floor. The wind would then blow away the chaff and you'd be left 
with, with the meat of, of the wheat. But here he is, he's threshing wheat down in a wine press, and we're, and, he, and we're told specifically why he did that. It was in order to hide it from the Midianites. And so that tells us if, if, if Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press, it tells us a couple things. Number one, it tells us that he, he's got a very small harvest. If you can fit in a little tiny wine, uh, wine press... And then the second thing is that he is doing it in fear that even that will be taken away from him by the Midianites if it's discovered. And so this opening scene related to Gideon is that he, we find him afraid, we find him hiding from the enemy, and basically his activity there in hiding and in fear is an encapsulation not only of his life but of all of the whole nation of the children of Israel in the light of, of the Midianites. And so... This is what uh, he was doing there. Are the words moving on your page? Okay. Here we go. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord then appeared to him. He's done watching all of this. And he said to Gideon, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Mighty man of valor. He's hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat so the Midianites don't steal it from him. I mean, what the Lord says to, to Gideon here, I mean, is completely contrary to what he's doing and, and his actions here at the moment. And Gideon's going to protest the, uh, this assessment, God's assessment here of, of him as a mighty man of, uh, of valor in, in just a moment. So, but the angel of the Lord uh, says that the Lord's with you, you mighty man of valor. And some people look at it and they say, well, uh, God is kind of mocking Gideon. I don't believe that for a moment. I don't think God mocks people in that condition. Wouldn't it be terrible if God was a mocker? Lord, I'm really in a pinch. And then he began to mock you. <laughs> I just wouldn't want to ascribe mockery to the Lord in this. I think that when God is looking at, at Gideon here, and he calls him a mighty man of valor, it's because God knows what he's going to turn this man into. Uh, you think about Abra Abraham, when he was Abram. God renamed Abraham Abram, a father of many nations. He doesn't have a kid. And he's got called, renamed the father of many nations. Then God made him into that, father of many nations. New Testament, Jesus speaks to Peter. Calls him a rock. What kind of a rock is that? Rolling stone or something. I don't know what. He can't stand up for the Lord and all. And, I, and here I'm mocking. I shouldn't do that. But I, because I recognize Peter's life. But here he is. He denies Jesus three times and all of these things. And yet what did the Lord do? Made him a rock. He ends up being crucified for his faith upside down and won't deny the Lord. And only the Lord saw that in him. And only the Lord knew that he could produce that in him. So when he comes to Gideon and he calls him a mighty man of valor, it's not because that's what he is at the moment. It's because God knew, you're next on my menu and this is what I'm going to turn you into. Which, by the way, is no easy project for God as we read Gideon's life. He is, he is to me, he is the reluctant judge. I mean, he, he doesn't see any of this potential in himself 
at all. And so Gideon responds to him. He said, he, he, he said, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, and now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites? Dear Mr. Angel of the Lord, would you please check the address of your mighty man of valor uh, telegram? Because I think you've got the wrong Gideon. You ever see that uh, Warner Brothers cartoons? And by the way, they crush any cartoon made today. I feel better for having said it. You know it's the truth. But where they deliver bugs to that family of apes, you're drawing a big blank on that, aren't you? So you got them to the wrong address. But anyway, okay. So they, he, he's looking at it, and you notice how he responds. He responds in verse 13 with three words, if, why, and where. You know, if, if God is for us and, 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 and God is real and all of these things, then uh, if and, and why and where. And in all of verse 13 to me, there is the uh, singular theme that the reason in terms of Gideon's perspective that they're in the condition that they're in is because of some failure on God's part. And that's a place that we never want to go as Christians. I always kind of shudder inside when occasionally, and thankfully it's very, very occasionally, I'll hear a Christian uh, whose life is a, a complete mess because of their own disobedient decision-making, and they will begin to blame God for it. They will begin to cast doubt upon his faithfulness or his goodness because of their circumstance rather than taking a personal responsibility for it. And Gideon is really in kind of a dangerous place here where he even goes so far as to question the validity of the stories that he has heard in the past of the children of Israel about the power and the greatness and the presence of God. In the same way that sometimes circumstances can get so difficult in a person's life, again, because of their own deliberate disobedience, and as they're bearing the consequences of their own disobedience, they will then begin to blame God and begin to doubt the Word of God, the um, history of God, the accounts of God. They'll begin to doubt the Bible because of their circumstance. That's a place that we never, ever want to go. If you ever find me out in that world messed up, because of my disobedience and my own ungodly decision-making. You are free to give me a good hard slap if I ever am tempted, much less do, uh, sully God's reputation for faithfulness and his reputation for goodness because of what I have made of my own life. And so he's in kind of a, a messed up place here, but God is going to get him straightened out, and God is very, very good at this. How could God be real? How could our history be real if, if we're delivered into the hands of the Midianites, if our life is 
what it is here. And then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of Midianites, of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? God said, Go in this might of yours. What was his might? His might was that God told him to go and deliver the children of Israel. And God, his callings are his enablings here. And so he said, here's your might. Here's how you're going to be successful, Gideon. And that is that I have sent you. Calling is everything. And so he said to the Lord, he said, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. Somebody's got an eye problem here. Now, he's not unusual in all of this. God's calling him to be the next judge, and he wants out. And so often as we read through the Bible, when God called uh, Isaiah, when God called uh, Jeremiah, uh, when God certainly when God called Moses, and he called him to do something great each time, they immediately begin to think about what God had called them to, and then they begin to think about how in the world can I do this in my own strength, and they want it out. Because it doesn't matter who we are, and it doesn't matter how big the thing is or how small the thing is that God calls us to do, every single one of us is confronted with our own inadequacy in and of ourselves to accomplish what God is calling us uh, to do. And so that's exactly what what he is faced with here, and uh, he, is, he, he realizes, I can't do this, uh, and, and he's paralyzed by his own inadequacy, and most of us face that when, uh, uh, when, when the Lord calls us in, in that kind of a, a way. We just feel we're in way, way over our heads. And so he seems to think that God's assessment of him is kind of bordering uh, on a joke. And, and he doubts his ability to rally his own family to the cause, let alone uh, his ability to you know, cause all of Israel to follow him in a victory over the Midianites. But the Lord has an answer for that. And the Lord turned to him. And, and, and so the Lord um, said to him in verse 16, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man, as if they were just one. The whole victory depended on one simple thing, and that is the presence of the Lord in Gideon's life. We have the presence of the Lord in our life. Remember the Great Commission, and Jesus closed the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, when he spoke to the disciples, and he said, and lo, by the way, I'm calling, it's a Great Commission, it's a big thing that I'm calling to you to. What does he encourage him with? And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. God plus one is a majority. It, it, God's presence with us is the assurance we're going to be successful in what he's, he's called us uh, to do. And, and so uh, this is the comfort that he gives to Gideon in his, in his call and gives him the promise, you're going to defeat the Midianites so decisively it's going to be as if they were one man. Now, the lesson from Gideon, it's a very, very important ministry lesson. And it's important that we don't look at it and say, well, ministry lessons, okay, so uh, why don't you clear all of us out and talk to the pastors? Well, uh, the problem with that is the Bible teaches that we're all ministers as Christians. 
We're all doing. We're all in the place where God, that we are, because God has placed us there for His glory, and He's gifted us for that, that calling and in, in, in that place. And and most often, God deliberately chooses people who are weak and inadequate, and He makes people choices that appear foolish to everyone else, so that when He does something great through our lives. He alone will get the glory. And it is so important to understand that about God. When God comes to you and asks you to take a step of faith, and you think he's looking for like uh, someone that got a 1400 on their SAT, we're going to all be pretty intimidated. But when God comes and he calls us to do something, and we realize, oh, that's right, you're usually looking for the weak thing, the base thing, the person that really can't do it and everybody knows that we can't do it so that when we do it, God will get all of the glory. Oh, okay, you got the right address. And that's how he works. Uh, and so he, we need to recognize that and to, and to realize that he realizes when he's calling us into his service He knows what he's getting and what he's getting as a project. Paul writes it this way to the church at Corinth, and he said, For you see your calling, brethren. This is a familiar passage to most of you, but it isn't to everyone. You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things, all right, check, 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 of the world, and the things which are despised, check number four, God has chosen, and the things which are not, check number five, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. We should never allow a natural reluctance to obey God's call upon our lives that he's making clear. We should never obey that natural reluctance and use it as an excuse to fail to do what God is calling us to do. Not any of us. Because God calls us and this this kind of a way. I, I think that in most of the pastors I know, and that's kind of where I serve in things, and I certainly believe it about myself, you ever... You can't... You, if God calls you to pastor, and it applies everywhere, but if God calls you to pastor, and He, and he calls on this kind of a basis, it's going to mean that people walk into a church and one of their first thoughts is, why in the world did God call him? What a terrible choice. I guess he gets all the glory out of it. And that's why he chooses that way. And so it's kind of humbling to know that he chooses in that way, but that's how it is that that he does choose. And so... Then he said to the Lord, Now, if I found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. And the idea is that I'm talking with God. I need you to do a miracle so I know that this isn't a figment of my imagination. I'm talking to some just guy off of the street or something. That it's you that's calling me to do this, God Almighty. He said, Do not depart from here. 
I pray until I bring you, uh, come to you and bring you my offering, set it before you. And the Lord said to him, I will wait until you come back. And so Gideon went in and he prepared a young goat. Couldn't go down to McDonald's and get it. I mean, so back in three minutes, okay, let's have the miracle. Take some time to prepare a young goat, cook that goat, unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. That's 21 dry quarts of, of wheat that was used just in that part of the offering. So you're talking about tremendous scarcity in the land. Look at the kind of offering he's going to bring to the Lord here, and it's a sign of his respect for the Lord and, uh, and uh, to honor him in this way. And so uh, the meat he put in a basket, he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them to the Lord under the terebinth tree, and he presented them. And the angel of, the, of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, lay them on this rock, pour out the broth. Gideon did so, and the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rose out of the rock, consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and the angel of the Lord departed out of Gideon's sight. And Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. The light really goes on. This was God that's talking to me and commissioning me. And so Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So he thinks he's going to die. He wanted a miracle. Got a miracle and now he's afraid he's going to die. And the reason that he's afraid he's going to die is because God had spoken to Moses in the book of Exodus and said, you can't see my face because if you were to see my face, you would die. So the, Jewish, the Jews felt that if they ever saw God face to face, that they would die. So he is concerned for his physical safety at this moment, but he, he realizes it's God that's commissioned him. And the Lord then said to him, peace be with you. Oh, I bet that felt good. Nothing like a good shalom at a moment when you think God's going to kill you. Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. And so Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, and he called it, The Lord is Peace, Jehovah Shalom. He named it after God's uh, encouragement to him in, of, of peace. And to this day, it's an Ophrah of the Abizarites. And so... Uh, when it talks about that, the fact that that altar exists to, to this very day, it's an encouragement to us that the Bible that we're reading is a historical book. Anyone that was reading this account at that time could have headed over to the city and seen the altar for themselves. The Bible's a, a historical book. Now, it came to pass the same night, and so here he acknowledges the fact that he's been commissioned by God and uh, so God is now going to kind of put him to a test and Israel to a test related to their idolatry. And so it came to pass that night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull and a second bull of seven years old. Uh, seven years, they've been in bondage seven years. And I want you to do this. I want you to tear down the altar of Baal that your father has. Wow, what kind of a house is this? And cut down the wooden image that is beside it. So at his father's house, they've got the village temple for Baal in their backyard. And so apparently his father is more than just a worship of Baal. He's probably the head Baal worshiper honcho in the village. And they got an Asherah pole right next to the, the, uh, the altar to Baal. And Asherah was a, a, a goddess that, of uh, in the ancient world, both of these, this god of Baal and this goddess, 
so-called very, very uh, sensual uh, gods. And so here this is going on. It's present in the village. It's present there even in the, in his, on his father's property. And, and Gideon is told to go in and cut it down and then to build an altar to the Lord. Tear the one down and then build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. Take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you have cut down. So he's going to destroy the altar to Baal. He's going to kill one of the oxen that was going to be sacrificed to Baal. He takes the Asherah pole and he's going to use it as kindling to burn the sacrifice of the oxen. And so this is what he's commanded to do. And one of the things that the Lord is uh, teaching uh, the children of Israel and, and uh, Gideon here in, in all of this and calling them uh, to, to do it is he's basically saying, Baal has to go before Midian can go. And God is basically saying, listen, this is not about the Midianites. The reason you're in the pickle that you're in is because of your disobedience and your idolatry. I can get rid of the Midianites, but I just would have to bring the Amalekites in right after them. We've got a problem with what you're worshiping in this world. We've got to take care of that first of all, and then we can deal with, with the Midianites. So this is a test to see whether the children of this would be willing to repent of their sin in other words, do they want deliverance enough that they're willing to repent of their sin? And so God is going to put them uh, to, to that uh, test. That's the test for the nation of Israel. This whole tearing down the temple and uh, this altar, rather, to Baal and all those things, in terms of what it means for Gideon, is God was going to test and see whether he would show his faithfulness at home, in his home first. And he needed to do that. He needed to make a stand for Jehovah, make a stand for the Lord in his own home before God was going to show himself strong on Gideon's behalf in his public ministry. And, of course, that's the same thing that's true of elders and leaders in the body of Christ uh, yet today. And, and so this is the call that he makes. I'm convinced that this was one of the hardest things that Gideon did. Now, that battle he's going to go out to and face the Midianites, that was a hard battle. But... Many, many times for us as Christians, it is much harder for us to make a stand for the Lord in our family or in our little village that is around us, our neighborhood, than it is to go win some gigantic battle in public. It is much easier for me to share the gospel from this pulpit in a room of hundreds than it is to share the gospel one-on-one -on -one with a family member or with a neighbor. But there has to be faithfulness here with Gideon. God says, I want you to be faithful in your family. Then I can entrust you with, with this, this bigger uh, sphere of influence. And to Gideon's credit, he was obedient. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants. He did as the Lord had said to him. Some people look at it and say, Ten men, what a coward. Why wouldn't he go and do it himself? Listen, dismantling a Canaanite altar was no small task. They discovered an a, a, a altar of Baal in Megiddo, which is not far from Ophrah. It was 26 feet square, four and a half feet high, made of stones, cemented by mud. 
So this altar was probably similar. He gets ten guys to help him because it's going to be a full night's work to tear that thing down. And, and so they do. He does it at, at night, and we're told there is a fear factor here, but he did it at night, but because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it in the day, he did it by night. And so I, I'm inclined to believe that If he had tried to do it during the day, he would have been immediately discovered and unable to accomplish the task. So he said, I can accomplish this at night, and then in the morning they'll wake up and and find it. And so it's actually pretty, you know, you look at it and say, well, is it fear in his nature here that he does it at night, or is it it fear that the work would be be interrupted and he wouldn't be able to finish it? Love gives the benefit of the doubt. That's where I'm going to go on that at least at this moment. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down. Imagine the shock. It was Alexander White, a great old commentator, uh, observing concerning this uh, passage, uh, said something like, well, the, the uh, followers of, of Baal were faithful to their morning devotions, First thing in the morning, they headed right to the altar and they discovered it torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. (laughs) Marty Feldman eyes, man, they couldn't believe what in the world happened overnight in our village. When you mess with what people worship, you're messing with what they consider the most valuable in life. His life is in danger right now for this. These people are really, really upset with what's happened here. I mean, this is jihad. This is holy war now over what's been done here. And so they said to one another, they're going to begin the investigation, who's the cause of this? So they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Uh-oh. And then the men of the city said to Joash, they went right over to the house, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. And so... The, they're going to now want to uh, sacrifice, so they want to kill Gideon for having uh, done this. Now, again, apart from God's protection, he's cooked here in this, in this situation. But the Lord has called him, told him to do it. God's going to protect him in, in all of that. The reaction of these men is absolutely insane. These are Jews. These are Jews who are going to kill a fellow Jew for tearing down the altar of Baal in Israel in an Asherah pole? How backwards could that be? This might be the lowest moment in, in the book of Judges, at least thus far among the children of Israel. They should have been celebrating what Gideon did. They want to put him to death. In fact, the law of Moses demanded... If, if God's law was being applied to the situation, demanded that these men would be put to death, capital punishment, and that Gideon would be made a, a hero. 
In the law of Moses, God said, if anyone brings any other idol or any other God into your midst and leads you into the worship of that, that influence is to be eliminated forcibly, decisively. That person is to be put to death. And, and yet, here they, they've got this thing so twisted in their mind, they're going to be ready here as Jewish men to kill a fellow Jew for being obedient to the Word of God. Well, didn't end there, but we like those buts in the Bible because this is a bad scene, so things change here with that but. But Joash, Gideon's father, said to all those who stood, uh, stood against him, he said, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for Baal be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. And so Joash comes to the defense of his son. I am personally convinced that he was literally shamed into action by the actions of, of his son. When he saw what his son had done, the right thing and the bravery and all of that, that, that it set him back and, and, he, and he comes in and, and uh, uh, protects his son against this uh, attack by these, these men. And he calls for the death of anyone who would shame Baal by thinking that Baal needed these kind of protections from man concerning his reputation. He said, let Baal defend himself uh, against this act. If Baal is truly a god, he should be able to defend himself. If he can't defend himself, then how do you expect him to defend you? And, and again, I think that he's very convicted by the actions of his son. And, and so Gideon was renamed uh, as a result of this event, therefore, on that day, he called him, his father renamed him, uh, Jerubbaal, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. And so Gideon gets renamed, a name that literally means let Baal defend himself. And so every time people looked at Gideon and they said, hey, now what's your name? My name is let Baal defend himself. And the fact that Gideon was still alive after 8 a.m. was an indication that Baal couldn't defend himself. It's a false god. So his life was a, a testimony uh, of, of the weakness of Baal and the power uh, of the Lord. I think it's an important lesson for us. I wouldn't take it too far, so we have to be careful with it a little bit. But I think we have to be very careful in our uh, sometimes especially for those of us who are zealots, uh, where we feel that we need to defend God. God's a big God. He knows how to defend himself and defend his own uh, reputation. And so I'm not talking putting down apologetics and those kind of things. Those things are really, really important and building bridges to people and giving them a reason for their faith. And, and, and we should be able to explain the scriptures and that, that kind of stuff. But we don't need to defend our God in, 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 in any, any circumstance. Whenever a person feels that they need to put artificial protections around their God or around their religion, it is, a, it is actually a confession of the weakness of their religion, of the weakness of their God. My God is so weak, he needs to be artificially protected. 
And, and, and we can really kind of dishonor the reputation of the Lord uh, related uh, to that. I think that, I remember one, of the, one time when we were up on the Temple Mount, one of the early times in the Temple Mount, which is under Arab control and under uh, Muslim control, basically, there in Jerusalem. And when you're up on the Temple Mount, um, you, can't, you can't take out a Bible and open it. You can't read from the Bible. You can't teach from the Bible. And what they've done is those Muslims on that, that Temple Mount is they have set restrictions on the expression of any other religion, including the Jews, any other religion on that Temple Mount is an artificial protection of Allah. And what they don't realize is it's a confession on their part of the weakness of Allah's ability to protect himself. And that's one of the reasons that you see, and it's kind of frustrating in trying to uh, witness to people related to Islam, is they have so thoroughly, most Muslims have so thoroughly um, defined any kind of questioning of the Koran or Allah as being blasphemy that the religion can never be searched out uh, on the basis of reason, on the basis of intellect. So, it, it, and what it is, is it's, it's, it's people saying, uh, artificially protecting something that they know can't really be protected. Uh, on, one of the, uh, on the first trip that we took to Israel, we were uh, with Karen and I, we were with Pastor Chuck, because I wanted to see how he, he did an Israel trip. And, uh, and they did an extension in Greece on the way back. And uh, we were told, when we entered into Greece, we were told that we could not share the gospel or evangelize the Greek population as Christians in that country. And we had already heard stories of people that had gone into Greece and had shared their faith and then ultimately were arrested and put in uh, jail and it took uh, the consulate of their country in order to get them out because the Greek Orthodox Church in Greece has uh, established a law within Greece that no one can attempt to convert someone out of Greek Orthodoxy. And what they don't realize is by putting this artificial kind of thing attached to their religion, it is a confession of the weakness of their religion. I don't particularly care for how my God is attacked in the culture of the United States of America. I don't like how he's blasphemed. I don't like how the word of God is portrayed. I don't like all aspects of free speech. I like free speech and I wouldn't change it. But, but I don't like everything that's said about, about God and about the Bible and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. One of the crazy things about California, and there are a lot of crazy things about California, apart from the budget, my goodness, this state has a reputation for being crazy. But there is something good about it. For instance, I was at the pastor's conference back east this last uh, uh, week, and um, one of the things that they fight a little bit over there is um, if you aren't, if you don't come from a, and your church isn't coming from kind of a religious denominational kind of a place, something that they can look and say, this has 200 years of history in the United States of America, you're really looked on with suspicion. California is kooky. So anyone can go and rent a storefront and call it a church. And 
have a go at it. And nobody even blinks, nobody has a problem. Very few people have a problem anymore if they feel that in that storefront God's Word is being taught and whatever is happening and they're meeting with God, they'll go anywhere. I mean, we're, we're, we're pretty intolerant as it relates to tradition and respect for that stuff. We're pretty irreverent that way. It has its disadvantages, but it has its advantages too. But one of the things about, that's nice about the United States of America with the freedom of speech is, is that you look at the, the prospering of Christianity and, and the church and the body of Christ. I mean, in the crucible of people just being able to say anything that they want to come against it and all, and God just rises up, defends his own reputation, just keeps saving people to the frustration of so many, and uh, just goes on about his business. And, uh, and, and it's actually very, very sweet. We do not need to defend the Lord, and we can actually look silly sometimes when, when we feel that we uh, need to do it. And so the Lord then, verse 33, then all of the Midianites, the Amalekites, the people of the east, they gathered together and they crossed over and they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. And so here they make their annual foray into the land. Now they're in the valley of Jezreel, which is way up in the north, all, uh, better known as the Valley of Megiddo, where the Battle of Armageddon is going to be fought. So way up in the north. So they come in. They think it's, all right, it's going to be like years one through six. Here we go. We're going to go in and plunder them again. But things are different. Verse 34, But the Spirit of the Lord came upon, baptism of the Holy Spirit word, Gideon, and then he blew the trumpet, and the Abizarites gathered behind him. That's his family from the village. What he did with Baal didn't affect his reputation in the long run with his family at all. They recognize him for a leader here now. So they get behind him. He sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh who also gathered behind him. And he also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they came up. Uh, to meet them. And we know a little bit later that it's a total of 32,000 that come together to uh, join uh, Gideon in, in this battle. And so uh, Gideon said to God, he's going to do a little fleece thing here, he said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, and then notice, as you have said, now why do you need a fleece when you know he said it? But anyway, this is the, this is the lesson. Of it. Look, I'll put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there's dew on the fleece only, and it's dry on the ground, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So he's going to give God a test here. And, when it, was, and it was so that when he arose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece together, and he wrung out the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Wow! Well, the problem with fleeces is you ask yourself, would that have happened anyway? Was that just a coincidence? So Gideon said to God, now don't be angry with me. Let me just speak one more time. But let's do the flip-flop on this thing. Let me test, I pray, just this once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. 
And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. I don't know how many of you, um, how many of you have heard of, of, you know, casting a fleece before the Lord as Christians? Just a quick show of your hands on things. Okay. How many of you come from a background or you've been exposed in the course of your Christian life that um, putting out a fleece is a good thing or an acceptable thing in the eyes of the Lord? Just raise your hand. So everybody's kind of, okay, so a little bit of that. All right, just want to know who I'm going to offend here in the, just for a moment. I don't mind offending, I just, I just want to know who to, you know, make up to after the service here. The purpose of the fleece here, and, it, and it's a great mistake, not only for us to operate on the basis of fleeces, and we'll talk about that in just a second, and I will get you out of here on time. But um, the, the, uh, the, this whole fleece thing is a great mistake uh, for Gideon also. And he puts this fleece out in order to try and confirm God's promise to save Israel under his uh, leadership. The problem with Gideon's fleece here is that he already knew that to be God's promise and God's will for his life. Because you notice he repeats the phrase, As you have said, as you have said twice, once in verse 36, once in verse 37. He already has God's word that he is going, is to do this and that he's going to be victorious. There is no higher authority by which to confirm the will of God for our lives than his word. Then this Bible that we hold on our laps, Gideon already had the word of the Lord. That should have been enough. And so Gideon is wrong here, and he's not a model for us as, as Christians. When we have God's word on anything, if we have a commandment from the Bible or some promise from the Bible, we don't need any more confirmation than that. Because God's not a liar, and, and, and he's going to be true to his promises, and he's going to be faithful to his, his commandments. And so he asked for a confirmation he didn't need. So the question people ask then is, well, why did God do it? Why didn't he take him out to the shed and have him pick out his own switch and let him have it spiritually? I don't know why God did it. But I, but I, I suspect that God was being gracious to, to get in under the circumstances. I think he was doing things for Gideon early in his relationship with God that he wouldn't do for him later. You notice that, that God has done that in your Christian life, where he, was, he would do certain things for you where it was, ex, it was acceptable for him to do it when you're a brand new Christian, but now it's not acceptable for him to step in in that, in that kind of a way. We need to grow in walking, walking by faith. So here he is, Gideon, brand new in a relationship with God, doesn't have a Bible. He's been raised in a pagan environment. His dad was an idolater, probably a priest of Baal there. And, and because this was his background, God is being extra patient with him. But as someone has said, his confusion, Gideon's confusion, should not become my example. What was excusable for Gideon is not excusable for virtually all of us in, in this room. Another problem with fleeces is that it makes us the leader in a relationship with God. I am demanding 
I, I, am, I am declaring that I will walk with God on my terms. And you never want to uh, exchange the pilot, co-pilot kind of designation or really the pilot, uh, passenger designation, this relationship with the Lord. And, and so sometimes you can run into people, and the reason I make a, kind of a little bigger deal of this is you, you do run into sections of the body of Christ that look as, at fleeces on the basis of Gideon here as a legitimate way for determining uh, God's will, and, and uh, it's not true. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, Lord, if you want me to marry that person, then have them call me before 8 o'clock tonight. What if they called at 8.05? How good would that fleece be? God, if, if this is the girl you want me to marry, or let's flip it around. Let's have guys calling girls. Let's go back to when this was a great nation. Just kidding. I had to get a dig in there somewhere. So, Lord, if he's supposed, I'm supposed to marry him, have him call by 8 o'clock, and he calls at 8.05. What are you going to do? You're going to throw out another fleece. You're not going to trust a fleece like that. You're going to work through that fleece. Lord, I meant 8.10. Lord, if you want me to sell my house, then uh, you know, let the offer be for such and such amount. comes in 5000 under that. Well, boy, I don't know. I think that's, that's pretty good, Lord. Thanks for getting in the ballpark on that. I'm going to go ahead and sell that. <laughs> the reason that we don't need the fleece to know God's will as Christians is we have better ways to know God's will. Number one, God's word. That's the sure way to know his will. The indwelling peace of the Holy Spirit. Let the peace of God rule or umpire in your heart, Paul wrote to the Colossians. The indwelling peace of God leading us in his will. Good, wise, godly counsel from wise, godly people. The Bible says there's safety in the multitude of counselors. There's safety in the multitude of godly counselors. And God can sometimes speak through someone and then his spirit will bear witness to the truth of what they're saying in our hearts. There's the leading of the Holy Spirit through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge. These are ways that God leads. Sometimes God just leads in, leads in His sovereignty, in His providence. He just works the circumstances out in a certain way that you can't go right or left. You just got to go in this direction. That's the stream. That's the flow of the stream. You just go with it. And, and then He knows, and I think that He works in that way in my life a lot, because he knows if he, if he allows me to complicate it, I will. So he just says, all right, let's put him in the white water and get him down to Colorado. And, and then I get there and then, oh, wow, I'm, I'm in, the will, in the will of God here on, on this. And so God, can, he can lead very much through circumstances. And then the Bible says that when we lack wisdom, all we need to do is really to ask him for that, for the things that aren't specifically addressed in the Bible, and he will be faithful to give us that wisdom. And so again, the problem with fleeces both then and now is when you do it, and then it, if it does happen, then there's always that doubt, would that have happened anyway? And there isn't that doubt with the Word of God and the ways that God communicates with us today. And the, and the sadder thing is if I throw a fleece out of my own doing 
and, and then I don't do what God is wanting me to do on the basis of that fleece, and now I can miss out on God's plan for my life. So we don't need to mess around with fleeces. Uh, God has, these in this new covenant, better ways to communicate with us. Well, let's stand together, and we'll close there this evening. I forgot to stop, start my stopwatch tonight, and... Um, uh, and then I had a clock up here, but they're getting me a new one, a digital one. And, uh, and so um, I didn't know what... And then I took my watch... How many of you noticed I took my watch off partway through the service? Some of you really watch that stuff. And um, it gives you hope when the preacher realizes there's a watch and time and that kind of stuff. And um, it's a misplaced hope, but it is a hope that sometimes you can have. So I put that right there, and I notice now that I've gone a little bit over. And, uh, but we'll stop and we'll pick things up in Chapter 7 with a battle official uh, the next time we, we get together. Let's pray uh, right now.